are so thrilled to have with us Nancy E. Shepard. She is a writer and historian focused on her native Hampton Roads, Virginia. Her main interest in, is the history, uh, particularly of Hampton Roads from 1890 through the present. Uh, she's a staff writer and photojournalist for the Yorktown Crier and Picosan Post, and the author of The Airship, Roma Disaster in Hampton Roads, and most recently, Hampton Roads Murder and Mayhem, which she'll speak on today. And I'll note that copies, of course, are available for sale and she'd be thrilled to sign them after she finishes. And just in talking to her earlier uh, this afternoon, she notes that another book is, is pending and about to come out this summer, which will focus on the lost amusement parks and attractions uh, in and around the Hampton Roads region. So uh, we really appreciate her interest in keeping this incredibly rich regional history alive. She's doing a beautiful job with it. So if you would please join me in welcoming Nancy Shepard. subject. <laughs> As Jamie was saying, my name is Nancy Shepard. I'm from Hampton Roads, Virginia, or Tidewater, um, as some of us natives call it. And this is my second book, Hampton Roads, Murder and Mayhem. And today we're going to talk about just some of the subjects that involve, well, our topic of murder and mayhem. That would be me. <laughs> Now, some of the things we're going to talk about today as a warning um, are a little gruesome, a little macabre. Um, I guess you don't come to a lecture about murder mayhem for not a little bit of blood and gore. Um, but we also need to keep in mind, of course, these were real people, real events. They had loved ones, dreams, and these are the horrible, defining moments of their lives. Now, I'll talk about a little etymology, of course. If you've ever been to my part of Virginia, it's the southern, southeasternmost corner of the Commonwealth. Now, Hampton Roads and Tidewater are two interchangeable terms I'm going to be using throughout the lecture, but they refer to essentially the same place. It's anywhere from northeastern North Carolina, such as Gates County, all the way up to Williamsburg, including Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Yorktown, Williamsburg, Jamestown, and so those are the terms we're going to be using today. Now, for my part of the world, it is very much known for the touristy things, the beautiful waters, things like that. But like everything else, there are there is a darker side. For instance, there was a massacre in 1540 at a Spanish mis mission, which predates Jamestown. And it was a mission that was set up between kind of Yorktown and Jamestown. In 1718, we had Blackbeard's head put on a pike in Hampton on the river and his men executed in Williamsburg. In 1861, the city of Hampton was burned down in order to avoid settling the contraband which escaped to Fort Monroe for safety. But from the burning of the city rose from the ashes an even more vibrant one. In 1929, beer tycoon and Colorado resident Adolph Corse, founder of the Corse Brewery, mysteriously fell from the Cavalier Hotel in Virginia Beach. Was it murder or was it suicide? Then in 1944, Julian Harvey, who was a test pilot at Langley Air Force Base, crashed his plane into the river, the James River down in Hampton Roads. 
He suffered some sort of injury, went on to commit various crimes, and in 1961, he committed mass murder off the coast of Florida before committing suicide himself. This is his body being wheeled out of the motel in Miami. And then we have an interesting little antidote. If you've ever been, if you were down in Hampton Roads around 1992, you may have heard about two shock jocks who told everyone that our beloved mountain of trash, Mount Trashmore, which is a park down there built from a literal mountain of trash, was going to explode. And it led to kind of a war of the worlds thing that occurred. Now, Virginia being the home of the first permanent settlement uh, for the English is the foundation of America's history. They came here for the promise of this Edenic paradise where there was, they said there was plenty of gold, food, uh, wonderful water, and it was going to be a wonderful venture for these colonists. When they arrived, it was the furthest thing from. And this is where we're gonna to begin today, is in Jamestown. We'll talk about Jane. We don't actually know who she was, but we do call her Jane. Forensics show that she was about 14 years old when she died in 1609, and she had arrived in Jamestown in approximately August of that same year. She came from a south, southern England area. She had a healthy diet up until the last few months of her life, and she was either the daughter of a nobleman or she came over as an indentured servant. While we don't know who exactly she was, she was meant to tell us a story, to learn something more about our past. And while we'll never know who exactly she was, what she gave us was far more powerful. Jamestown uh, was founded on May 13, 1607 by a joint stock company, the Virginia Company of London. It wasn't meant to be a colony for people to come over and settle and live, but it was meant to be a money-making venture from the natural resources that are plentiful here in Virginia. The people who came over on the Susan Constant Godspeed Discovery in 1607, under the guidance of Captain Christopher Newport, weren't exactly ready for hard labor. You had a lot of gentlemen and people who hadn't lived a hard agrarian life. When they arrived, they were shocked. There wasn't any readily available source of drinkable water. In fact, the water down there was a natural resource for arsenic. And it produced it at dangerous levels. There was a seven-man governing body, which was very disconnected from the rest of the folks that were there. And they were tended to be at, at odds with one another. They couldn't ever get anything accomplished. On top of that, Virginia was in the midst of an unprecedented drought, and even the native population here was struggling just to make food ends meet. By the end of the first eight months here, of the 104 men that came over, only 38 survived due to either starvation, they were murdered, or from some sort of mysterious disease, which was akin to arsenic poisoning. But still, they persevered. The summer and fall of 1609, they were struggling. They needed more supplies. So they sent for more supplies from England. Now those resupply ships, one of the largest one in particular, got caught in a horrific hurricane 
and was stranded in the Bahamas. An interesting note on that, that ship was the inspiration for the story The Tempest, written by William Shakespeare. When the one ship, the Swallow, which is the one we assume Jane arrived on, came, they had no resources for the colony itself, but so many people that they couldn't be absorbed <coughs> into it. They were forced to camp out in a cornfield <coughs> that was about seven acres. And within three days, the seven-acre cornfield was decimated. At this point, the tensions with the native population had gotten so terrible that they were forced inside the palisade walls, which <coughs> inside those palisade walls, they had no food. They had no water. All they had were a bunch of people. Now, once they were forced inside the Palisades, anyone who dared to venture outside was murdered. Inside the walls, they slaughtered their horses, dogs, cats, vermin. <coughs> they ate tree bark, roots. They ate anything they could find, chewed on their shoe leather. And when they had nothing else left that winter, they turned to the one readily available food source they had, each other. George Percy wrote of a time that a man was caught with salted pieces of his pregnant wife hidden in corners of his hovel. He claimed that she died of natural causes, and that's what he had to do to survive. But George Percy, who was leading the colony at that time, wanted to make an example that murder was not an acceptable way to survive. He had this man executed in a rather gruesome fashion by having him burn alive. But a blind eye was turned towards eating people who had already died. He described the gaunt neighbors, his gaunt neighbors digging up bodies and licking up their blood from the ground. They were leaving behind their civility and they turned to survival. And this is the difference between what we normally would think of as cannibalism and survival cannibalism, when it's done for the means of survival. And this is more than likely what happened to Jane. She probably died of natural causes. She was buried and then disinterred. There were two different butchers who took care of her remains. They cut her cheeks off, pieces of her legs, and any meat that they could cook. This is her skull, which is actually on display at the Archearium at Historic Jamestown. And right here you see cuts from where they were removing fat from her skin. There are pieces of her head that this wasn't a product of later burial, that this was them trying to remove her brain. Once they got all they could off of her, they threw what was left of her in a burrow pit to wait for discovery in 2012. Of 300 colonists that were forced inside the fort at the beginning of that winter, only 60 survived the spring. By the time that spring came around, they attempted to abandon the colony, seeing it as an absolute loss. But en route back to England, Lord Delaware caught them and forced them back to clean up the fort. And under martial law, he was determined to make this colony work. And it did. But it came at an incredible cost. Between 1607 and 1622, 4,800 of the 6,000 colonists 
that arrived at Jamestown died. They faced immeasurable odds. And in an unknown world, where they were attempting to assert their culture on an already thriving one in untenable conditions. Today, iron crosses stand where archaeologists have found bodies that were buried throughout the 40. And in, at the bottom of the refuse pit at what was a home, this unknown girl waited quietly, waiting for someone in 2012 to find her. And only pieces of her have been found, her skull, piece of her shin bone. But what she did was she confirmed the most grisly of rumors of what happened to our forefathers at Jamestown. She confirmed that, yes, they did involve themselves in survival cannibalism. It wasn't a proud moment for our forefathers, but they did what they had to do. And while we'll never know who she was, she was meant to give us so much more to learn about where we came from in that darker side. Now we're going to move on to witchcraft, 1706, and one of our most beloved heroines in the Tidewater area, Grace Sherwood, the witch of Congo, and the last witch tried in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now Virginia's history with witchcraft differs a great deal from our brethren in Massachusetts. Our colony was a bit different in terms of the fact we had kind of a, a divide between religion and the government. We tended to be a little bit more, um, I would say, intelligent in our way of looking at things. But nonetheless, witchcraft was still a very real thing. And uh, so the superstitious nature, which still existed, but not nearly to the extent as it did in Massachusetts, prevailed. Now, courts in Virginia were determined to keep these false accusations from occurring. So they set a series of laws in place saying, if you accuse someone falsely of witchcraft, your husband could be sued for a ton of money. And so they tried to avoid it whenever possible. Now they had certain litmus tests as to what determined what a real witch was. One of them was looking for what they called witches marks, which were little, what they called teats, which would have been moles, scars, whatever, and they thought that this was, these were teats for the devil. And then women, who were usually the ones accused, who tended to do things that were out of the ordinary, whether they strayed from their marriage, or they strayed from societal conventions expected of them under this very harsh patriarchal society, they were usually the ones that were accused. And this is where our lovely grace comes in. Now the first known case of witchcraft in Virginia was a woman named Joan Wright from Kickatan, which is in the Newport News area of Virginia. She was a skilled midwife, and in 1626, she was accused of the death of a neighbor's infant, while also accurately predicting the, deaths, the death of two other neighbors. Though looking through a 21st century lens, it kind of makes sense why she'd be able to, because she was a skilled midwife during a time of unprecedented drought, she would have known the signs of death. Now, even more interesting, she was also accused of causing one of her neighbors to not be able to hunt well, and another one of dancing naked in front of a tree. Now, it wasn't her fault that her neighbor was a poor hunter, or the other one had some rather strange exhibitions. But nonetheless, this led her to being accused. She, 
went up against the court and she fervently defended herself and she managed to win her case. Now only a handful of witchcraft cases actually ended up going to trial and even less than that people were actually convicted and in Virginia we had no executions for witchcraft. There was one man who was banished, there was another one who was sentenced to lashings but still there were no executions so it's not quite as gory as the Salem witch trials. I'm going to introduce you to Grace Sherwood. She was born in a rural section of Virginia Beach known as Pungo and if you've ever been down there it's near the North Carolina border and it's still very rural. She was born about 1660 and she was the daughter of a man named John White who was an educated man, a landowner, and he was a farmer. They were members in good standing of the Lynn Haven Parish and she was known to be vastly independent, beautiful, outspoken, and intelligent. These were things that they didn't like women to be at this time. <laughs> I would have been in trouble. <laughs> in 1680, she married a man named James Sherwood. Now he was outside of her societal class. He wasn't considered educated. He couldn't even sign his name. And he was not a landowner. And so this made her an immediate pariah to the rest of the parish. Oh my gosh, she married below her status. <coughs> But John White, her father, loved his son-in-law. He left most of his property to him when John White passed away. And they, her family continued to work the farm without any slave labor or anything. And she was considered a local healer, and she was known to traverse the lands wearing men's trousers and collecting various herbs and other medicinal things. And she and her husband had three sons. Now, throughout their marriage, there were rampant accusations of witchcraft and other things because Grace was known to speak her mind. On top of that, they had a huge tract of land that others were drooling over. When her husband died in 1701, he did not leave a will. Her land was turned over to the Queen of England, but there is no record that shows that she was forced to leave it. She still kept working it. And she refused to remarry, which was interesting for the time, as women could not gain any sort of legal or monetary or societal benefits without a husband. But she refused to remarry. Now, she volleyed several different accusations of witchcraft, and then she got into a bit of a tiff with one of her neighbors, who wrote to the higher court in Williamsburg saying, this Grace Sherwood, she's a witch, you need to look into it. Well, the court of Williamsburg sent it right back to the Lynn Haven Parish to take care of. They said, this is beyond our, our means. We don't have enough evidence. Let that court take, take a look at her. So she was arrested and taken to the courthouse, which, if you've been down there, is quite a distance from Pungo. She was inspected by a jury of women, mind you, many women who did not like her, who claimed that her body did not at all look like theirs, meaning she probably had some sort of skin tag or something that they decided was a witch's mark. The court could not definitively decide if she was a witch. So they turned to some kind of archaic ruling to try to figure out, and that was trial through witch ducking. 
On uh, July 10, 1706, she was taken out to the Lynn Haven River in a body of consecrated water. Now, at that time, which ducking was equated to if they ducked you in the water and you drowned, that meant that you were not a witch. You were dead, but you could be buried in, in uh, consecrated ground. But if you floated, heaven forbid you should float, then the consecrated water was trying to expel the evil. So one way or another, there was no winning. But of course, the Lenny Parish was like, no, no, we're not going to let her drown, right? They took her out to the river. She had nothing to say when they asked her if she had any last words. She was like, nope, get it done. So they tied her right thumb to her left toe and vice versa and threw her in the river. Everyone waited, and after a few moments, she swam to the surface. Oh my gosh, she's a witch. So they tried again just to make sure. And most people at this time, they couldn't swim. And it happened again. She swam to the surface. She must be a witch. What they didn't think about is that Pungo sits right on the water. And it was normal for someone to live right on the water to know how to swim. And frankly, who would want to drown? And so at that point, she was taken to Williamsburg. And unfortunately, the court transcripts have disappeared in the ethers of time. But she was convicted, and she was put into jail until, until 1714, when she was released. After her release, she returned to her farm, and she successfully petitioned Governor Alexander Spotswood, who was not exactly a popular guy, for ownership of her family's land. In exchange for two pounds of tobacco per acre, Grace was given the land patent, and it was also given to her and all of her posterity. As of 1731, she was only one of five female landowners in Virginia, and she was the only one designated a widow. She died in 1740, and while there are suspicions, we're not quite sure where she's buried down there. In 2006, on the 300th anniversary of her ducking, Governor Timothy Kane formally exonerated Grace and restored her good name. <laughs> a little bit too late. But we still celebrate her quite a bit in Virginia Beach, which is ironic considering we're also the hub for the, for the Christian Broadcasting Network. <laughs> and we have a road called Witch Duck Road, named for Grace. There's a neighborhood called Gracetown. There's a beautiful statue of her that exists near the Bayside Hospital. And at Witch Duck Point, that's where she was ducked. And at Fairy Plantation House, they celebrate her as well. In Virginia Beach, she is quite a heroine, but for all women and people, she says to us that we shouldn't be afraid of exhibiting who we are. And it's okay to be yourself and not have to conform necessarily to what society says you should be. Now we're going to jump ahead many years to 1931. And of course, a lot happened in the meantime. But we're going to talk about the trial of the century, and this is a nice, juicy story. This young man here is Alicia Kent King III, and now we're going to learn a little bit about, about his background. Alicia Kent King III was the son of a prominent doctor who was known for doing his own appendectomy. He also came from a lineage of famous generals and explorers, and he came from a town that was actually named for his family in Pennsylvania. 
He served active duty in the Army between 1917 and 1920, and during that time he was stationed in Newport News, Virginia, where he met this beautiful young lady named Jenny Graham, and they married in 1920. Jenny Graham was from a really neat little neighborhood in Newport News called Hilton Village. It was built for the shipyard that's down there, and if you ever get a chance to go through Hilton Village, I highly recommend it. It's very cool. However, the two of them spent time apart as Alicia continued to serve in the reserves. He was also a traveling professor of romantic poetry and languages. Needless to say, her parents were not fond of this romantic non-man's man. Now, they did have a passionate relationship, and whenever they were together, they exhibited. They were known for laying around naked and reading poetry to one another. But nonetheless, the time apart drove the two of them apart. While traveling, he met uh, Betty Dahl, who was this, they had to put the worst image of her. Uh, anyway. And they had a very brief clandestine affair. Now, Jenny found letters that Betty had written to her husband, and being any good wife, she demanded he end the relationship. And he promised her that he would. And not only that, he took a long-term professorship in Tennessee to be with his wife. Now, Jenny suffered from a heart condition that her own family didn't know about, but her father-in-law was treating her for. And Alicia knew that he needed to be home with his wife to take care of her and rebuild her, their relationship. In 1931, they planned to travel to Newport News to visit his in-laws, who weren't exactly excited for the idea. And they planned to go to this little remote part of the area called Grandview Island Beach in Hampton. Now, upon their arrival, allegedly, Jenny gave a letter to her mother that was from Betty to Alicia with a note on the end of this that said, with a little nerve and a very little time, we could get rid of her. Now, Jenny had recently expressed to her father-in-law that she wasn't sure the medicine that she was taking was working for her heart. So she was concerned about this, going out to Grandview Island Beach, and with that letter saying what it did, it's understandable. Now, this is the Grandview Island Light, a Grandview Lighthouse, which no longer exists. And to this day, that part of Hampton Roads is still extremely remote. You're not going to run into another person there. Now on September 11th, because all good things happen that day, don't they? They went out to the lighthouse and they were planning on going swimming. Jenny was nervous, but Alicia assured her, I'm a good swimmer, if anything happens, we'll be fine. Now, a little while later, there were some fishermen off the coast who heard screaming and just assumed it was young lovers doing what young lovers do on a beach and they paid no mind to it. Now, not long after that, Alicia Kane was seen screeching through the streets of Hampton, driving his car before pulling up to Dixie Hospital and carrying the limp body of his wife inside. He was manic, demanding that someone help her. She wasn't breathing. She was he was demanding new doctors, anyone who could attend to his wife, to the point they had to calm him down and assure him there was nothing they could do. She was dead. After talking to coroner Barrett Vanderslice, Alicia told him about his wife's heart condition, and this is her death certificate, and he ruled it an accidental drowning because of her heart <coughs> condition. 
Now, Jenny's mother, having absolutely no knowledge of her daughter's health condition, could not accept this as a manner of death. She allegedly gave the coroner the letter who informally changed his opinion from accidental drowning to murder. In the meantime, they planned Jenny's funeral at St. John's Cemetery in the heart of downtown Hampton. Alicia planned to return to Tennessee to get their affairs in order right after the funeral. But he was unable to leave when he was arrested immediately following. He was taken to jail and the Grahams did everything they could to disparage his character in the media. They claimed that he was psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually abusive towards Jenny. Now the Kane family rushed down from Pennsylvania and they did what they could. They put up bail and Alicia was not himself. He was unkept, he was grieving, and he was in disbelief. How could they accuse him of murder? They went on the defense and they had him interview with, with various media reports reporters. And the image of him was quickly transformed from a cold-blooded wife killer to being a tragic widower who misstepped without a hall pass. When asked by a reporter if he was scared of getting the death penalty, he replied, physical death is not so terrible to me as life without the things I have lived for. Even if I escape the electric chair, my position as it is, is gone. My family disgraced, my wife dead. And he really tugged at the heartstrings of others. But still, he needed to go to trial. At the trial, Mrs. Graham was seen falling apart in manic fits of tears to the point she had to be escorted and put on bed rest from a nervous breakdown. Her daughter-in-law painted a picture of the Cain's lives as being bedlam full of profanity, booze, and Alicia bragging about his exploits with other women in front of his wife. During her testimony, Alicia, who had been very guarded throughout most of the trial, rushed the bench and demanded for it to end, and he told the judge, I apologize, I couldn't take much more of this. Now on the flip side, friends and colleagues and family members came to the trial in Alicia's defense. They said he was a devoted mar uh, married man, and a cheater doesn't make a murderer. Now in the meantime, the gallery was spilling out into the streets. This handsome widower and this beautiful young <coughs> local girl, and they had everything from affair, murder, intrigue, and it just kept growing and growing and became known as the trial of the century for Hampton Roads. When the jury decided that it was, well, when the trial came to an end and the jury went to go make their decision on December 12th, 1931, it was as if the world paused. Everyone waited in the streets, hushed whispers, what would happen? Would he be convicted? Was he guilty? Was he innocent? What would happen? And everyone held their breath at 11.45 p.m. when the jury returned and the judge read the verdict, not guilty. This is a picture of Alicia leaving the courthouse that night. And he said to the crowd that it was going to be very much, you know, he's gonna go back to his life and he thanked the judge, but whether or not what happened to Jenny, we really don't know. Now, as far as we know,
well, the lives and the pains and the grams, and the dolls, which was Betty Doll, his uh, mistress, never again intersected. Alicia returned to his family home in Pennsylvania and briefly managed Stomach Hospital after his father's death. In 1933, he remarried Mina Gladys Schuler, and they had two children together, and then he returned to active duty service in 1941. He earned the rank of colonel and was even a Bronze Star recipient. But for Jenny Graham, the center of this entire situation, her grave remains a lonely relic in the back corner of St. John's Cemetery, next to a wall that has moss covering it, forgotten to the ages. And the last story we're going to talk about is the Lindbergh baby, and a little lesser-known piece of the Lindbergh baby mystery. Now, we know Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, his wife. They were the golden couple of aviation. They were aviation royalty. I know my own grandmother had a crush on Charles Lindbergh. He was a very handsome man, and Anne Lindbergh was a beautiful woman, incredibly smart, very well-read, and an extraordinarily talented writer. In fact, she is someone that I tend to idolize a bit myself. She was also a gifted aviatrix. In 19, on June 22, 1930, the apple of their eye, Charles Lindbergh Jr. was born. He had wisps of curly blonde hair. He had a cute little cleft in his chin. He had these curved toes that are a little misshapen. His parents absolutely adored him, and he was the crown prince of American aviation. On March 1, 1932, his nurse came running into his parents' parlor in Hopewell, New Jersey. Charlie Lindbergh was missing out of his second floor bedroom window. There was a ransom note left, and someone met, one of their intermediaries met with a man named Cemetery John in a cemetery in New York. The man had a thick accent, and he wanted some sort of bribe to return the child. The Lindberghs were reluctant to trust local police at this time, and Charles decided, Charles Lindbergh decided he was going to lead the charge of the investigation himself. He was going to get his son home. Anne Lindbergh was a devoted mother, and every day she published in the newspaper a special diet for her son, hoping that the kidnappers would at least take care of her son until he could be returned home. In the meantime, John Hughes Curtis was a 45-year-old businessman from Norfolk. He owned J.H. Curtis and Book an Engine Company. Now, during the Great Depression, his family fell on hard times and were forced to give up their palatial home for an apartment. And they weren't living the life that they were living before. On March 10, 1932, he contacted Reverend Dobson Peacock, who is this gentleman right here, and confessed that the night before, he was approached by some unknown bootlegger in his parking lot. This wasn't an unusual thing because they tend to run various uh, unsundry people through this particular area. But this bootlegger told him that he was in touch with the kidnappers of Baby Lindbergh. And he wanted Curtis to be the intermediary. Now, Curtis had absolutely no attachment to the Lindberghs whatsoever. And he was wrestling with this situation. Should he do it? Should he not? 
The good reverend said to him, you have no choice. To refuse would be inhumane. Now, through a series of twists of fate and meeting various people who are connected with the Lindbergh family, Curtis found himself on the other side of Charles Lindbergh's desk in Hopewell, New Jersey. He told that in his meantime, he had met with, with the kidnappers in a train station in Trenton, New Jersey. He describes things about these kidnappers that seem to be in conjunction with Cemetery John, in terms of appearance, accent, and everything. Now, what we must keep in mind, this was the first big paparazzi situation, and every detail about this kidnapping was published in the newspaper. Nonetheless, Charles Lindbergh clung on to this hope that this man would help him bring his son home. First, Curtis took Lindbergh to the New Jersey shore. They went into a boat with ransom money, and then when the kidnappers never showed up, it was time to move on to their next location, Norfolk, Virginia. Lindbergh came down here with Curtis, paparazzi in tow, and they boarded the yacht Marcom, who was which was owned by the owner of the Monticello Hotel in Norfolk. They sailed in and out of storms off the Virginia Capes. They had a plane from the US Navy flying, looking for the specific yacht that allegedly Baby Lindbergh was on. In the meantime, Anne continued to have quiet doubts of the validity of Curtis's story. Even so, she led the charge from her parents' home in New York City, hoping that her son would come home. Lindy blindly trusted Curtis and followed him. But when the ship never showed up, Curtis claimed that they were spooked by the paparazzi and that they needed to go back to New, Jer New Jersey. Meanwhile, on May 12, 1932, William Allen and Orville Wilson pulled over to the side of the road near the Hopewell, New Jersey estate. They were truck drivers and they were making a delivery. They had to use the restroom, so they ventured out into the woods. And as they were preparing to use the restroom, one of them looked down and saw something white, glistening, and small. He dug a little bit further and found curly wisps of blonde hair, the blackened skin covering a tiny child's corpse. There was a cleft in the chin, curved toes, a little bit of clothing left. They went and got a police officer who went to the Lindbergh estate, retrieved nurse, and brought her to identify the clothing. Without a doubt, this was baby Charlie Lindbergh. They called the hotel where Charles was staying with Curtis, and they had him come back. Curtis didn't know what was going on. He just knew that Charles had to leave. Charles walked into the morgue that night collapsed, fainted after seeing the desiccated corpse of his child laying before him. In the meantime, the police officers went and got Curtis and anyone else involved in the investigation and held them up inside the Lindbergh estate. The next morning, Lindbergh retrieved his son's body and took it to a crematorium. 
Burgess was asking, why am I here? What's going on? Still didn't know because they were cut off from the rest of the world that baby Lindbergh had been found. Police took him to various locations. He once described in such intimate detail, but he couldn't pinpoint any of them anymore. In the early hours of, oh gosh, there we go. In the early hours of May 17th, 1932, he confessed that it was all an elaborate hoax. It was all a lie, the signs of a deranged man. They held him in jail, and the Lindberghs were betrayed that they had put so much trust on top of grieving for their only child. He went on trial in July 1932 in what became the infamous hoax trial and was convicted, fined $1,000, and he was released from prison that November. This is where our story kind of comes full circle. He went home to Norfolk and he tried to put the case behind him. He was a beloved member of the community, and they all accepted the story that it is, was all the product of a deranged man. He even denied a request to speak at the trial for Bruno Richard Hoffman, who was later convicted and executed for the murder of Charles Lindbergh, who died probably within hours of being kidnapped. Now, Curtis's tall tales again, were deemed the product of a maniac, of a mad mind, and he went on to become president of Dumps Marine Railway. <laughs> In the mid-1950s, he signed a contract to build the reconstructions of Susan Constant, Godspeed, and Discovery at Jamestown Settlement. A particular quote that he said to the Daily Press newspaper, which I think pretty much defines his life, nobody but me would be darn fool enough to try it. <laughs> He died on May 21st, 1962. As for the Lindberghs, their lives were never the same again. They had a turbulent marriage, Charles having fathered several children out of wedlock, and Anne living a, a relatively lonely life with beautiful children that they still had together. But Charlie Lindbergh's legacy has left a massive impact on federal laws. Again, these were real people with real lives and real tragedies. These were someone's sister, brother. This was someone's hope and dreams. And they were all snuffed out in these horrible moments that ended up defining them within our history. I like to think of areas kind of like people. What you see on the outside can be beautiful, can seem perfect and untouched. But it's those darker moments that really define and grow a community together, just like a person. It's what defines you. It's what we don't like to talk about, but it's what we can't ignore in our history. And it's these things that bind us together and make us think about our history a little bit more. Thank you.
does the skin darken after death? I was just wondering that. Well, I'm a historian. Historically, we're not very good with science. Um, but it's just, it's part of the decomposition process. There's a great YouTube channel called, uh, let me see here, um, something with a mortician, and it's done by a mortician in California, and it's a lot of interesting stuff if you care to peruse that, you know, in your free time while eating lunch. <laughs> a bit more about the arsenic in the water. I've it's, it's really interesting. Um, I, I didn't actually know that there was, it was an arsenic aquifer, but they did studies and they're still around today because it's a brackish water. And because of that, between the heat and the humidity and the water itself, it naturally creates arsenic. And depending on, at that time, there was the drought and Again, the heat and humidity, and we all know how it is around here in the summer, um, it causes the level of arsenic to become lethal within the water. And so they were drinking that, on not even knowing it. And they would have stories of people's skin peeling and dying in these violent, gruesome deaths within days and not being able to tie it back. And then they went and studied the soil and some of the bones and discovered arsenic in it. And at first they were like, oh, it was a Spanish... Um, Poisoning, but as it turns out, that's it's still happening today in the aquifers around there. So, thank you for the question. Um, just curious, were you born and raised in Hampton Roads or Tidewater? I was born in Norfolk, and I spent most of my life in Virginia Beach, and now I live just south of Yorktown. And uh, although I can't claim I'm about, about as local as they come, my husband is actually fourth generation from his high school in Norfolk. So, um, but yeah, I've spent most of my life there. My parents were come here with the military. And it's a fascinating place to be. Yes, I was born and raised in Hampton. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. assume that most of them died from starvation? Yeah, that would be the biggest assumption is that they either died from the arsenic poisoning or from starvation. It was a very small handful that were actually killed at the hands of the native population. And if you look at really the history of it, you can understand why they were very protective of their area. Um, but it was mostly starvation. Um, they described when Lord Delamar came in, he described the people in the colony, just skin and bones and eyes bulging out and just not able to really carry themselves. It was rather disturbing to them. I never heard that there was a Spanish settlement. Can you tell us anything about that? I mean, it was not in my history book. I would love to tell you a little bit more about that. That's a relatively unknown piece of our history here in Virginia. The Spanish claimed the area from Florida all the way up through here, and it was called La Florida. Uh, they called the Chesapeake Bay Bahia de Santa Maria, and they thought that was going to be their passage to the other side of the world. And here in particular, and down near Jamestown, there was such deep waters and plentiful fisheries and whatnot. So they decided they were going to take um, a group of Catholic priests and settle a mission, create a mission, 
in around between Jamestown and Yorktown. And there they set up the mission, but they didn't take any weapons with them to defend themselves. They had one young man who was from the native population who was supposed to act like a translator, but as soon as this young man saw his people, he ran back and abandoned the mission. Now in the meantime, they were starving, they were running out of supplies, and they tried to strong arm the native population to giving them supplies. Well, their young translator came back with axes wielding and massacred the priests that were at this mission. It was only one young man that survived this. And he ended up telling this horrific story. And this is pretty much what started that ball rolling with native population having an untrustworthy view of any Europeans that came here. And at the same time, it also kept the Spanish from really wanting to settle here, but wanted to take advantage of natural resources, which is why we had that dynamic between the English and the Spanish here less than a century later. So, thank you. We need to record. You like to record your voice. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if there are any other uh, notable or interesting uh, witch stories in Virginia, because I know there were some in Virginia, but you don't hear a whole lot about them. It's all about Salem, mostly. That's true. Um, really, our history with witchcraft very much pales in comparison to Salem. A lot of that was that mass fervor and that mass panic that occurred, and the executions. Grace Sherwood was probably the most notable out of all of them. She was the, the last one. But because we tend to take more of an imperial, empirical look at that, I mean, if you can say that for that time period, um, it wasn't quite the same fervor. There was Joan Wright, who was the first, to Grace Sherwood being the last. There was a couple that was accused, but it was really nothing in comparison to um, what they had in Massachusetts. Nonetheless, we still have them but we didn't have like the executions and the panic and the girls collapsing from seeing specters and whatnot. We didn't have that same Nathaniel Hawthorne-esque drama. So anyway, thank you so much. Um, appreciate it.